It's truly an honor to be gathered together this Sunday morning, isn't it? To appreciate the blessing and richness of God in so many ways and to be assembled in the way that we are for the purpose of offering worship unto our great God in heaven in truth and in spirit, John 4 verse 24. And certainly we're always delighted when visitors come our way today and we have several from the place where I work at Lipscomb University, thankful for a, a group of students who have traveled up from Nashville today to to, to put up with me yet another day of the week, I guess. But I hope we could each, in fact, worship in the way that would uplift us and magnify more than anything else the name of the God of heaven. You probably have already noticed on the wall behind me that we're going to talk about burial today, but not ours, at least directly, but rather the burial of the Son of God. As we do that, let me ask you to begin with some of these introductory thoughts. Isn't it amazing that as you and I peruse through the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, that we encounter so many individuals who appeared on the biblical stage for at least a while. We often learn dramatic elements in faith and truth from them. On occasion, we are provided their mistakes, and we could even learn from them as well that we might do something differently. But surely as we come to two gentlemen who will be the focus of our study today, Joseph of Arimathea on the one hand and Nicodemus on the other. I hope you have your Bible already open to that text. Brother Dennis read earlier from the 19th chapter of John. And in just a moment, we'll cast a bit of a spotlight on the nature of that passage and use the events and the lives of those two to make a profound influence in faith for you and for me as well. As we do that, may I suggest near the bottom of that slide, of course, their names I've listed for you there. But we'll have much more to say about them shortly. I'd like to begin the lesson, though, by at least reminding us that the centerpiece or the act upon which they themselves invested that work surrounded, as I've mentioned, the burial of Jesus. When you think about the burial of the Master, what comes to mind? Wouldn't it be fair to say that we, and rightfully so, cast a strong element of spotlight on His crucifixion? The fact that He was nailed to an old rugged cross and the fact that He shed that precious and innocent blood for the sins of, yea, the, the entire human family, those that will come to Him in faith. The Bible so often speaks about His death. 1 Peter 2.24 highlights the fact, doesn't it, that He bore our sins in His body on the tree. In addition to that, you certainly can readily remember the text in Revelation 5 where there a beautiful anthem was so wonderfully exclaimed concerning the Master, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and glory and honor and blessing. But you see, to highlight the attributes of His death also leads us to note we frequently highlight the beauty of His resurrection. In fact, many verses could be listed that bring that thought to our mind. What about Romans 4.25? Sure enough, speaking of the Master, it says, He was delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. The raising of Jesus, His resurrection. I would also invite you to consider Acts 17. When Paul preached that unforgettable message there in Athens on Mars Hill, you may recall that in verses 30 and 31, he made this remark. The times of this ignorance 
he overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he is appointed a day in the which he'll judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Fair to say, isn't it, then, that so many more verses could have been described that either mention the resurrection or the crucifixion. But, of course, you and I know there was something in between those two. After the Lord was crucified, and yet prior to His resurrection, He was buried. The body was buried. Isn't it interesting to reflect on the fact that burial was significant? It wasn't a matter of insignificance. In fact, could I invite you to note this? The Old Testament had foretold some of the precious details of the burial of the precious body of our Savior. In Isaiah 53, that unforgettable suffering servant, among the grandeur of that passage, verse 9, reminds us that with the wicked as well as with the rich, his grave would be made. Now you and I know at first sight that appears unusual in that the Lord wasn't a rich man from the perspective of, man, of humanity. Wasn't it true? He had already said, The Son of Man hath not where to lay his head, Luke 9, 57-62. Fascinating then, isn't it, that nonetheless it was to be the case that somehow identified with the rich he would be in his death, specifically his burial. As you and I come near the close of that present slide, though, let's continue those thoughts perhaps like this. That burial has a tremendous significance, not only for the fact of what happened concerning the body of Jesus, but the New Testament uses the attributes of that burial as a very significant and important thing in livelihood for us today. In Romans chapter 6, verse number 3, we, are, we have the following mention, "...buried with Him." by baptism into death. Now the hymn refers to Christ, and yet Paul, by that inspired consideration, affirmed that when you and I are baptized in faith, we're buried with Him. The hymn is Christ. And in the same way He was buried, we, of course, undergo something like it. May we never forget the significance of the burial of the Master and that to which we and I submit, so that we can rise like He did to walk in units of life, that is what we're supposed to do. The burial of the Master. Surely, one last thing on that slide, and we'll then begin to make some statements about its details. But it might be noted this. The gospel message that you and I love and treasure so much is a message that includes the burial of the Master. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4, we have these brief statements made. Paul said, Moreover, brethren, when I preach to you the gospel... So we might ask, Paul, what are you preaching? He said it's the gospel. What does it include? He tells us in the next several verses. First of all, it includes this, the death of Christ. It includes the resurrection of Christ, but he also includes the burial between them. And so when you and I to this day cling closely to the gospel of Christ, the burial is significant, not only for the particulars of what it meant for the body of the Master, but in its meaning for you and me as well. What about the details of that burial? The next slide will begin to at least highlight some of these things. 
Two gentlemen are listed, and you and I have already noted their names. Joseph of Arimathea, as well as a man named Nicodemus. They, of course, came and took care of the particulars surrounding the burial of the body of Jesus. It is the case, then, on that slide. The New Testament writers give us four inclusive accounts. They work together in beautiful harmony. Matthew chapter 27, Mark chapter 15, Luke chapter 23, and John chapter 19. All four of them bring us particulars and specifications about the nature of this burial. And so it is that I've listed, putting very quickly together, some of the things we know about these two. First, Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible, specifically Luke's account, says that he was a rich man. There we have, Paul will help us fulfill in our appreciation that claim in Isaiah 53. Not only was he a rich man, it is said that he was honorable and good. Apparently a man of rather notable respect and influence. What's more, would you note this? He is said to have been just. He was interested in things being carried out in a way according to justice. Luke said he was a counselor, apparently suggestive of the fact he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council. That ruling authority among the Jewish nationalities of the time. That'll be significant in just a moment. Perhaps two more things. The Bible says Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Though apparently a Jew he was, he nonetheless was convicted and convinced about the life and preaching of the one called Jesus. So much so that he was willing to be a critical part in the burial of his body. Finally, it is said that he was a disciple, but secretly for fear of the Jews. We'll again have more to say about that in just a moment as well. But what about the other gentleman mentioned, the man named Nicodemus? We usually are a bit more familiar with him. We first encounter him in John chapter 3. It is there said that he was a ruler of the Jews, but he came to Jesus by night. And he had, of course, an interesting observation. Master, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these things that thou doest, except God be with him. At that point, the Lord quickly then said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. And at that point, those words, of course, were so startling to Nicodemus, and yet they resonated in his thinking, and they would ultimately become a vital part of his understanding and service. It is with those things in mind. We next encounter him in John chapter 7. Again, in his position as a member of that Sanhedrin council, Nicodemus, in fact, at least on that occasion, came to the defense of Jesus in that. He at least asserted it was needful for a man to have a fair trial. And, of course, we encounter him again here in our text of John 19. I say all of that to at least quickly say that these two are spoken of in some interesting ways in the Bible. And now for some additional details. You and I are so familiar as we open the Word of God with some of those events. It was what you and I would call the spring of the year in AD 30. The Passion Week, of course, was that particular week surrounding when those Jews would celebrate the Passover. Jesus had entered into Jerusalem triumphantly on that Sunday. 
as he did so just very few days later. We remember that. On Thursday, they put him to death. Our Lord died on that Thursday. They nailed him to the cross at 9 o'clock that morning. 3 o'clock that afternoon, he died. Six hours, and the last three of those hours, remember, darkness was over the land. At this point, might I invite you to notice, the Bible quickly moves to tell us then, of course, given that sundown started a new day, of course, for, for really the, the Jewish nationality. There was just a few hours there, and they made rather quick haste to try to take care of the bodies. And there's where Joseph and Nicodemus enter. You can well tell, according to Mark's version especially, that these pieces of information are given. Joseph, it says, went to Pilate, and he begged the body of Jesus. He didn't just quietly and passively ask for it. He pleaded and begged that he might have that body. Doesn't that give us an inclination of how much respect and love that he had for the Master? The text says he craved it. He craved for that body of Jesus. Now once he had it, you and I begin to notice, Pilate, of course, had an immediate decision to make. There are many impressions we have of Pilate, but one thing we would at least have to recognize is, as a Roman official, they were very skilled at putting people to death. Cruelly, very much in painful ways. Well, at least the Romans... They had people in their entourage, those employed by them, who could determine when somebody was dead. That was their job. Pilate, it says, ask a centurion, is he dead? Pilate couldn't give that body away till he was dead. And that centurion confirmed, yes, he's dead. Maybe you've heard individuals through the years who said, oh, this claim about Jesus being resurrected was a hoax. He never really died. Some claimed he fainted, he went into a coma. It was not that way. There were officials in the Roman Empire, and they knew when a person was dead. And this man claimed that Jesus had died. You might recall that a Roman soldier had even pierced his side with a sword back in John 19.34, and out came blood and water. No doubt about it, Jesus had died. But as our story, our record proceeds onward, you might appreciate this. Once Pilate had confirmation that Jesus was dead, he agreed to give that body to Joseph. And so it was that now we have the following record. Nicodemus came and he, of course, appropriately assisted in the anointing of the body and preparing it for its burial. We read just a moment ago in John 19 about that very thing. The body of our master was wrapped and placed in that sepulcher that belonged to Joseph, a rich man. Sure enough, with the rich, he had identification in his burial. Maybe two last things on that slide. At this point, wouldn't you be impressed with one other thing the Bible mentions, and though you and I should give some attention to it, the Bible is careful to say no one had ever been buried there. Now that raises in our mind this observation. There was one scene back in the Old Testament, that of Elisha. You might recall Elisha had passed away. And an invading army as they were coming by at the burial of this other individual. 
those people who were taking care of the burial just hastily threw that body into the same place where Elisha's bones were, and that body came back to life. Wouldn't you be impressed here? That couldn't have happened. You see, Jesus is such that he was buried where nobody had ever been buried before. This sepulcher and a stone was rolled over it, according to Matthew's account. And one last thing, would you notice? Women watched where he was buried. Have you ever heard some assertions? Some have claimed, well, when Mary Magdalene and the others came back to the tomb, they were mistaken. They went to the wrong tomb. No wonder they found it empty. That isn't true either. Those women watched where Nicodemus and Joseph had put the body, and they knew which tomb it was. They found it empty when they came back Sunday morning. To put all that together, we close that slide then and move to this one. Several lessons about this great work of Nicodemus and Joseph, things that can be very meaningful and very profound for you and me. May I ask you to consider the first lesson of the day today. These two gentlemen did a tremendous and great work. Look at some of these details. May I ask, what happened to the bodies of the thieves that were crucified that day? Remember, Jesus was only one of three. There was a thief on his right and one on his left. What happened to the bodies of the thieves? The Bible doesn't say. Roman history seems to suggest more than likely something like this. As I mentioned earlier, the Romans were exceedingly adept at putting things and people to death. They were good at torture, they were good at cruelty, and they were good at putting down all perceived insurrection. They didn't like troublemakers, quite likely. There was a well-known pit, a well-known, shall we say, place of repose or garbage, refuse. Quite likely, the bodies of the thieves were simply cast in a place to deteriorate and decay. But you notice that Joseph and Nicodemus kept that from happening to Jesus' body. Remember, he came and begged for it. And what a great work of preservation, at least showing respect and honor to what the Master had done. These two did something that great. To that might we add this. In Matthew eleven eleven, what might that mean for you and me today? Remember, Joseph and Nicodemus at that time were not members of the church. The church hadn't been established yet. That wouldn't occur until Acts chapter 2. This again was several weeks prior to that event, and yet the great work which these two had done. Doesn't it remind us a little bit about John the Baptist? In Matthew eleven eleven, it is there said by Jesus of John, Among those born of women, there hasn't arisen greater than John. But he that's least in the kingdom is greater than he. If you're a Christian, consider how great you can be. And think about the character of the kind of service you and I can render for the cause of the Master again. You'll notice these two at that time were not members of the church, and yet you and I can be that very body that Jesus died to establish, that marvelous group, that organization that is, of course, the one that He died to build. The greatness of the work which these two had done and which they did is a work that reminds us, of course, 
that may you and I be careful to employ our skills, our talents, our capabilities in such a way that we can render service to the cause of the one who died for us. That great work maybe brings us to a second lesson. In many ways, some of these tie together, but I did invite you to consider the element of courage. I mentioned a bit about this earlier, but it's time, it seems to me, to think more carefully about really what this involved. I've tried to develop it like this. Mark 15, 43 does explicitly tell us that it was with courage that Nicodemus and Joseph did what they did. But you and I can now be more specific and even somewhat explicit about that in the following way. I mentioned a moment ago, and we know it well from history, that Rome did not look kindly upon not only those who were known for insurrection, and after all, there were those who claimed Jesus to be a king. John chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Caesar wanted no competition. Now, Jesus, of course, had finally been put to death, but what about all of those who were His friends and His associates and those that were His close ones that, that labored in His behalf? It would have been very easy for Rome to take a dim view toward them and perhaps not only make life very unpleasant, but perhaps even put them to death. After all, what happened just a few hours earlier than this? Jesus had gathered with those apostles on the previous night to celebrate and to keep that Passover. And you and I remember after that, that He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, and there a whole group came and arrested Him. What did all the apostles do? The text in Mark 14, 50 says they fled. They didn't want to stay there because they may arrest me as well, you see. And there, when Mark makes reference to that, he quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Zechariah, and there, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be, shall be scattered. And that's exactly what happened. You remember how fearful Peter was? At that very night, at the trial of our master, you know, Peter from a distance was watching the events, and Peter denied him three times. I don't know him. I don't know the man. Why was Peter so afraid? No doubt in part, if I identify with him, they may haul me up there and I may in fact be tried just as well. It's a notable thing to imagine the courage that it took then for Nicodemus and Joseph. Joseph went to Pilate. Went to Pilate, not some official of Pilate, but he went to Pilate, the text says, and begged for that body. What if Pilate had said, so you're one of them, huh? Maybe I should have you put to death as well. That didn't seem to deter Nicodemus or Joseph in the slightest. They went. They obtained the body. And as they obtained it, then they took care to rightfully give it the respect that they considered appropriate and the proper burial of a Jew. No wonder I might ask you to look at some of these verses. Not only was there a potential problem from Rome, what about from the Jewish nation? In John 7, verses 13 and following, the explicit phrase, fear of the Jews, is there listed. The Jews, of course, in many ways had a great disfavor toward that for which Jesus stood. They considered Him a blasphemer. They often considered Him 
one that was not a keeper of the old law. Later on, you may notice in John 19, verse 38, one more time, that phrase, fear of the Jews, is found. Would you be impressed that one more time in John chapter 20, even after he was dead, how did the apostles meet? On that Sunday morning, it says they met with the door closed for fear of the Jews. Even after Jesus was dead, the Jews were still somewhat angrily moving toward the nature of those apostles, it would seem. All that leads me to say this. Nicodemus and Joseph had to be very courageous to go get that body. They had to consider that what they were doing was worth the risk of what was involved to get it. What about you and me today? Must we serve the Lord with courage? There will be many instances due to the fact that the devil promotes primarily the matters taking place in the world and often that will be arrayed against the truth of Jesus Christ. That mustn't deter you or me. Just like that wonderful book of Revelation that reminds us of the victory promised to the saints, to those who are faithful to the Lord, be faithful till death, and he said, and I'll give you the crown of life for Revelation 2.10. Those saints that we saw beheaded in Revelation chapter 6 were the ones in Revelation 20 that were reigning on thrones with Christ. It had appeared they'd been defeated, but it wasn't so. May I suggest the Bible frequently encourages you and me to be a person of courage, realizing that quite often, just like Jesus said, the world has hated me and it's going to hate you too, John 15, 19. There will be many things that take place that the world's not going to like the way you and I do it, and they're not going to like the way we think about it. And they're not going to particularly approve it either. But it's being faithful to Jesus, just like Nicodemus and Joseph. That mustn't deter us. One last thing on that slide might be a list of passages like 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all that live with godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. When you face hardship because you're loyal to Jesus, don't let it surprise you and let it not surprise any of us. The Lord said that's the way it'd be. But whether it be courage or whether it be this attribute, these attitudes we've seen so far, let's look at lesson number three. Perhaps this one's one we haven't quite thought about as often relative to these men. But John 19 seems to highlight it. May I invite you to consider this subject of sacrifice. The King James Version states in verse number 39, And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night, and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about an hundred pound weight. A hundred pound weight. Now, admittedly, that, that hundred pounds, based on as near as we can tell from the original language, is not the pound that you and I would use today. It was only about three quarters of one of our pounds. And so that leads me to say that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of these myrrh and aloes to make preparation of the body of Jesus. Maybe at first sight we think, What's that mean? 75 pounds. Maybe this additional verse gives us some idea. Do you remember with me back in John chapter 12 
Mary came to Jesus and she used one pound, the text says, which would be again about 12 ounces by our reckoning today. But she used one pound and anointed the Lord with it. And they that were with Jesus were very angry at her. Why has this waste of the ointment been made? It could have been sold for 300 pence, they said. 300 pence. 300 pence. You realize what they were claiming is what Mary did was about a year's wage. If that be true, and if this stuff that Nicodemus used was comparable in value to that, think how many years this was. If one pound, as it's listed, represented again that which was basically one year, and Nicodemus used a hundred times that much, at the very least this was several decades worth of work and value. What do you think about that? Can you imagine spending two, three, four decades of continuous work and using the money you'd get out of that to buy what's needed to anoint this body? I'd like to suggest to you Nicodemus sacrificed apparently quite a bit. In addition to all of that, what they used this for in the anointing of the body of Christ challenges us to think very clearly about ourselves. What about the sacrifice that you and I invest relative to our service to Jesus? At the bottom, may I ask you to note, all of that sacrifice, it seems, would have included this as well. I mentioned earlier today, both of these were members of the Sanhedrin Council, both Joseph and Nicodemus. I wonder what happened to them as members of that council after Jesus was dead and after they finished this business of the burial. That council, again, had been the very one that declared Jesus worthy of death. I wonder if they lost their positions. I wonder if the other members of the council blackballed them and forced them to to leave. We don't know. The text doesn't say. It would certainly seem likely that they lost a lot of influence. They lost a lot of the prestige they formerly had enjoyed. They lost perhaps their very positions in the Sanhedrin council. That's something to consider, isn't it? Would you and I have done it? Would you and I have done it? If it would cost me my job to be a servant of Jesus, would I give up my job? If it cost you your rank, your position, your prestige, and that which you've come to appreciate, would you be willing to give it up to be faithful to the Master? These are good questions. May I say, Joseph and Nicodemus ask them of us every time we read these gospel accounts. One last thing on that slide. Isn't it true that Jesus Himself taught us that to serve Him will on occasion demand sacrifice on our part? He said, any man that loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Any man that loves brother or sister more than me is not worthy of me. Luke 14, 25 and following. Keeping all those things in mind, you and I then are admonished and urged to Serve with top priority, Jesus, our Savior. Having looked at these three lessons, only one remains, and the lesson will be yours. Let's briefly highlight this one. I saved it to last 
because I thought that in it we might be reminded of one additional truth, and let's not read over it too quickly. Isn't it true that sometimes serving our king can require some messiness on our part? Earlier I described, of course, that Jesus died that Thursday afternoon. It was a death that you and I remember that He had, of course, been nailed to the cross and He'd already been scourged. He was no doubt bloody. No doubt in the sweat that would have went with it, the smell probably wasn't very pleasant at all. And Nicodemus and Joseph took that body, regardless of the smell there may have been, and they took care of it. And they buried it with dignity and with honor and with a considerable love that they had for what Jesus had meant and done. But service to the Lord could sometimes require messiness on my part or yours. Could I ask you to think about these verses? Sometimes, perhaps one, you or I may think, that's a little bit beneath me. Let somebody else do that. Is there any work in service to the Lord that's beneath you or me? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, that even if you give a cup of cold water in my name, that you're doing what's pleasing unto God. As you and I keep in mind in a service like that one, isn't it true that the prophet Zechariah had asserted in Zechariah 4 verse 10, let nobody despise the day of small things. When you and I can offer help and assistance to a brother or sister in Christ or even outside the kingdom to those who are in need, Nicodemus and Joseph at least remind us how significant that can be. Service to the Master can be messy. And service to the Master brings us to a concluding statement. We've studied today about the burial of Jesus through the viewpoint of Nicodemus and Joseph. And as we've done that, we have at least in brevity appreciated four things. First of all, we highlighted what a great work that these two chose to do was. No one made them do it. But with that, what courage they took what sacrifice they made, even in the face of messiness. May you and I be urged and charged to be faithful, always realizing that with that faithfulness, Jesus recognizes and knows what it is that we do, and that great home in heaven will be worth it all. It could be that someone in the audience today realizes that you've never become a Christian after seeing or at least appreciating what these two have done, and you realize what you need to do as well, you need to believe in Jesus with all of your heart. John 8, 24. Lovingly repent of your sins, knowing that He died on the cross to pay the price for those sins, and it's your desire to turn from them. Acts two thirty eight. Confess the greatness of His name as a Son of God, highlighted in Matthew 10, verses 32 and following and then be buried in baptism for the remission of your sins. After all, we appreciate the beauty and the grandeur of, in essence, replicating in a symbolic way the reality of what Jesus did. Today, if we could assist you and help you, we'd love to do that. If you have become a Christian, but you haven't been faithful, you've lived in a way that's brought disgrace to yourself, to the church, to the name of Christ, why don't you come back to your first love, admonished in texts like Revelation 2, verses 1 to 5, 
If we could assist you in that way today by taking observation and note of your repentance and confession, we'd pray to God on your behalf, and He's promised to forgive you. If we could be of assistance, why don't you come while together we stand and while we sing?